Well, it's good to be with you this Lord's morning, this Lord's day, and let's pray. Lord, come together as a family, as a body that you have brought together. I thank you for this time. I pray that your people will not see me or hear me, but see and hear you, Lord. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you use me. For your honor and for your glory as we now dive into a new chapter John chapter 7 in Christ's name I pray amen well it's been an amazing journey so far as we've been carefully examining every verse every word every line in the book of John John chapter 6, but we are now sadly leaving that great chapter of John chapter 6, where we learned many things. First, we we saw the feeding of the 5,000, which actually was maybe 15 to 20,000. We saw the difference between the true disciples, what true disciples are, and what false disciples are. And we had to ask ourselves, where do we fit? In those two camps, we saw the crowds and how they flocked to Jesus, primarily, though, for their desire to see a miracle from Jesus, the benefits that they can get from Jesus. We saw Christ's deity on display as he defied the laws of nature as he walked on water and calmed the storms. We also saw his deity on display as he said that anyone who looks upon the sun and believes should have eternal life, and he will raise that person up on the last day. That's the beauty. That's one of the great news of Christianity, of the gospel, is that we have a promise, we have a guarantee that his elect, Christ's elect, will die, but also will be raised up on the last day. But we also saw the hard sayings of Christ in John chapter 6, verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So, so far, to the average reader, and from what I've been seeing, it would seem like Jesus' mission is failing. So far in the book of John, we've seen how Jesus has caused great commotion and Pandemonium wherever he went. I mean, think about it. In chapter 2, verse 13 on down, he goes inside a temple and he cleans house. He wreaks havoc. That's not a good way to start your ministry. That's not a good way to make your name known. In chapter 3, one of the leaders of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus, asked Jesus, We know you're a good teacher. We know you're a teacher from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So you would think that Jesus would say, you guys got me. You caught me. I'm I'm here. The Messiah that you've been waiting for, I'm right in front of you, right? You would think he would say that to this leader. But no, he says, unless one is born again, he cannot see in the kingdom of God. What type of answer is that? That makes no sense whatsoever to the question that was presented to him. I mean, wouldn't you think, Jesus, you have the leader of 
one of the strongest groups in the world. Why don't you just tell him who you are and, and just be done with the whole thing? Then in chapter 4, we saw that he spoke to an adulterous woman, had five failed marriages, and is now living with a person who she is not married with. And it would appear that she might have received Christ, but we don't know for sure, right? On top of things, the miracles aren't going as planned. Because Jesus is now being sought after for what they can get from him. Instead of just simply his words and who he is. They saw Jesus as the miracle worker. You see, to us, it would seem like Jesus' mission is failing, but, but we are far from the end of the story. The Gospel of John is not only the heavenly story of Christ, but it's also an apologetic book. Because it gives reasons why Jesus is the Christ. It gives reasons why Christ, Jesus, is the Son of the living God. The miracles served a purpose. The hard teachings of Jesus served a purpose. That is to separate the sheep from the goats, the reprobate from the elect, the true disciples from the false disciples. And we've seen that pattern so far in the book of John. But as we start in the ministry of Jesus in John chapter 7, we begin a new journey. We can call it many things. We can call it Christ's divine mission, the reason why he came to earth. We can call it the journey to the sacrifice of the spotless lamb. Or we can simply put it, the road to the cross. And that road to the cross starts in John chapter 7. From here on now, in the book of John, we will see nothing but division and hatred and conflict. For seven chapters, we have seen Christ revealing the condition of the human heart. And as his light shines brighter and brighter, the opposition toward Christ, primarily by the Pharisees and the people who they are influencing, grow colder and darker. We will see in John chapter 7, the Pharisees and many of the people are completely fed up with the claims that Jesus is making. They're fed up with his miracles. They're fed up with his teachings. And now they're ready to take action. And this hatred will not stop until in six months he will be put on a cross. The Passover that we learned about in John chapter 6, or should I say the Feast of the Jews, is now over. Now we move on to the new Passover, which is the Feast of the Tabernacles, and that's upon us now. Throughout this chapter, there's one question that I would like for us to consider through the entire chapter, and it kind of encompasses the entire chapter, and that is, who is Jesus? It's a question that's widespread throughout the land. It's a question that his disciples and brothers asked amongst each other. It's a question that Nicodemus asked, and the Pharisees, I'm sure, asked amongst each other. It's a question that has been spreading all throughout Galilee, Judea, and the surrounding areas. Who is this man. And we will see that question reappear each Lord's day. We read in the book of Luke, I have, I have came to cast fire on earth, and with that, it already be kindled. 
I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From one on, from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. And they will be divided. Father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. This is a very uncommon verse that Christians will recite today. Many who worship Jesus view him as a person who practiced and preached peace and unity on earth. And how we should come together for the betterment of the community. From Muslims to Buddhists to Hindus and Mormons. Even Jews would refer to Jesus with terms of respect and honor. However, in the lifetime of Jesus, that, that wasn't so. In fact, in Jesus' own lifetime here on earth, he was betrayed as this figure who sharply divided people. Division pretty much sums up the life of Christ in John chapter 7. He's already lost most of his disciples and he's made some sort of, or the, the Jewish leaders mad because now they want to kill him. So today the Jesus I present to you is one of division, one of conflict. Let's stand for the reading of the word. John chapter 7. After this, Jesus went about into Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be openly known. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my hour, my time has not come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. But you go up to the feast. I'm not going to this feast for my time has not yet come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were were looking for him. At the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some say he is a good man, others say, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. You may be seated. Now, it says, after Jesus went about in Galilee... He would not go into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, you must understand that there is about a six to seventh month gap between the ending of John chapter six that we learned last week and the time of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, so between those two times, pretty much from last Sunday to this Sunday, there's a seventh month gap. Okay, and those many in those seven months, many things have transpired. John does not tell us those, what happens in those seven months, but the other Gospels do. We know for the most part, Jesus has disappeared from all public areas. 
Okay? He goes to small towns of Tyre and, and Sidon, and, and there he does what he's always been doing. He does his teachings, he does his miracles, um, he does his instructing, but also he does discipling. Okay? For those seven months, Christ finally revealed to his disciples the reason why he came to earth. And that is to die. That is to be rejected. That is to die. But as also to rise from the dead. Also, during those seven months, Jesus gave three of his inner circle, three of his most closest companions, the privilege to see him in all of his glory at the Mount of Transfiguration. For those seventh months, Jesus poured rich theology and he shared life with those 12 disciples. They ate together. They slept together. They laughed together. They cried together. But more importantly, they were on mission together. Let us not forget that that is our duty as well. Us as Christians, us as believers. We, meaning the pastors or the elders of the church, we feel that that is one of the marks of a biblical and healthy church. Disciple making. We aren't focused too much on church growth by the way of growing numbers that we see that is so commonly practiced or are said today in the church. But more importantly, we go by church growth in the terms of how our members are growing. We're not worried about growing numbers, but more so growing members. <clears throat> how many seats are filled up inside the church doesn't matter. More so, how many seats are filled up inside the church with authentic God-fearing Christ-exalting, baptized believers. The church should never be made up of a crowd, as you know. Nor should we focus our attention on the crowd or where the crowd is or where the crowd is going. You guys hold testament to that. You're here today. But more so, the church should be made up of a congregation, of people who are a family, who are a body. That's exactly what Jesus is doing with the twelve. He's teaching them. He's discipling them. He's showing them, this is how I pray. This is how you read the scriptures. This is what I do. And oh, how I long for that. To bring someone aside uh, in my life. To speak into them and, and to encourage them. To walk with them. To share life with them. Let that be encouragement to you also. If you have little sisters or little brothers, start discipling them. That would be a great start. The ending of verse 1, however, goes, goes off and tells us one of the reasons why he stayed away from the big areas. He said he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. As we see this hatred that the Jews had for Jesus has been escalating and, and progressing ever since John chapter 2. And Jesus, being aware of that hatred, thought that it was best for, for him to stay away from all big areas and places for as long as possible. Jesus has been avoiding Judea because he knows the depth of hostility that's awaiting him in Jerusalem. He knew that there was a price on his head. He knew that people were seeking to kill him. We couldn't even imagine living a life that way. Knowing that the most powerful men on earth wanted you dead. I often think about 
Malcolm X, that famous picture of him where he's standing outside of his window holding a gun, looking out the blinds, knowing that in any second his life could be taken from him. That's the life Jesus will live from now on up to the crucifixion. He's been avoiding Jerusalem, not out of fear, not that he was afraid, but simply it wasn't his time to die yet. No one is going to take Christ's life from him, but he, take, he lays it down when he is ready. Verse 2, it says, Now the feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. So, we have the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles that's at hand. And what that is, is basically a week-long celebration. Okay? <clears throat> it is a time for the people to come together and remember the, the time when Israel wandered in the wilderness. And lived in booths and tents. You can read about that in Leviticus 23. Now, each family constructed its own temporary shelter or branches to live in for that period of time at the feast. And it was a celebration of the ingathering or the harvest and also a looking forward to the Messiah that was to come. It was a time of thanksgiving, primarily for the blessings of God in the harvest. But it was also observed with special reverence to the blessings received during the wilderness wanderings. Josephus says that it was the most cel- cel- it was the most celebrated out of all Jewish feasts and festivals. It was the happiest of all occasions, and you can see that they're celebrating something that basically Christ did. Now he's going to a feast that's celebrating him, and there awaits him great hostility. So his brothers, knowing that this huge event is coming up, they make a suggestion to Jesus. They said, leave here so your disciples may see the works that you are doing. For no one who works in secret, if he seeks to be known openly, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. You see, Jesus' brothers at this point was fed up with Jesus. Now, they were not fed up with the person, him per se. I'm sure they loved that he was a miracle worker. But they were fed up with the way he was doing things. The way in which he went about things. They were frustrated with Jesus' method in which he carried himself. Their way of thinking is, you know, Jesus, this whole time we've been in Galilee. And, and yeah, we went to Capernaum, which is a pretty big place. We went through Samaria, which... We shouldn't have even gone. We've been visiting these little towns, and that's nice. But, but Jesus, your, your thinking is too little. Your thinking is too small. Your vision of the kingdom is too small. You need to go to Jerusalem. You need to show everybody what you can do in Jerusalem, in, in, in the big place, in the metropolis, so to speak. That's where you need to go. I mean, if you think about it, someone who's running for president doesn't just circle around Lamont, Bakersfield, and Arvin, but they go to Chicago and Los Angeles and New York. So Jesus, so the brothers are saying, why are we stuck here, man? 
Why are, why are we laboring in these little areas? But let's go to Jerusalem. Show yourself. I mean, you know the Feast of Tabernacles is coming up. Every man is required to be there. You know that they want to see you. Go show yourself. Go reveal these people who you are. But the motivation that was behind their words is go prove yourself to us again. Not to go show yourself off, but won't you show us one more time why we should believe in you? Because as of right now, we don't even believe that you're the Messiah. I mean, Jesus, if you go to Jerusalem, maybe those disciples that left you at the end of John chapter 6, maybe they'll see those miracles and maybe they'll come back on your team. Maybe. But for the most part, we don't believe your claims. You see, their view of the Messiah was their view of the Messiah shaped and formed their view of who Jesus is. You see, the Messiah was one who would come and wage war against Israel's enemies. And by that, he would gain victory over the Gentile world. He would be a political figure, a revolutionary that would build and conquer with a bloody sword and ultimately take down Rome. He would be a king and rule like David, and he would be a prophet and lead like Moses. But they didn't understand that those people were all types to the antitype that is to come, which is Christ. And we all know that antitypes are always greater than the types that's before them. But they didn't understand Jesus. They didn't understand his method. They didn't believe in him. They didn't understand who he was. In those seven months, Jesus was with his disciples. He spoke about his death. But in their mind, wait a minute, the, the Messiah is not supposed to die. No one's supposed to take the Messiah's hands or life. The br- brother's view of the Messiah and the world's view of Jesus are strikingly similar. What do I mean by that? Because their traditions make up who Jesus should be. Think about it. Before you became reformed, who was Jesus in your eyes? A great man who loved everyone and died for everyone on the cross. Who only preached love. Who was waiting for you to come. That's the dominant view of who Christ is in Christianity, right? He's waiting outside the door of your heart. Wanting, wishing, and hoping that you would open it. We've heard that many times. But that's tradition. That's the first truth. And similarly, that's how the brothers view the Messiah, based off their tradition. But we know that those people who are so focused in their tradition, who won't accept anything outside of their tradition, are ultimately slaves of their tradition, right? And likewise, the disciples refuse to accept Jesus and who he claims to be, as do many people refuse to accept who Christ really is. And all around Jesus, we see this unbelief. The Gentile people, the crowds, they didn't believe. The Pharisees, they didn't want to believe. 
you would think that the one people that, that would have Christ back at this very moment would be his own family. But yet, they didn't believe also. <clears throat> I often hear atheists and unbelievers say, well, if I was just there to see the miracles, and if I was just there to talk to people and talk to Jesus, then I would believe. Or if God just revealed himself to me one time, I would believe. But what makes you so sure, atheists, and even us, that we would have believed? When the very people who walked with him didn't even believe. This is a testament to what Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And in John chapter 6, verse 65, this is why I told you that no man, no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. The father had not yet drawn Jesus' brothers to him. And their eyes have not yet been opened. Their hearts have not yet been softened toward Christ. But the great news is ultimately they will. But yet his grace and love did it for us, right? Something that wasn't so clear to the brothers who they seen, who they walked with, is something that's also clear to us who have never seen and we never talked to and we never touched or seen. That's the greatness about God. Amen. That even though he didn't do that for one person yet, he did it for a sea of people in due time. Let's move on. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. So we see in verse 6, Jesus giving the same response he gave to his mother in John chapter 2. Remember in John chapter 2 at the, at the wedding, um, they ran out of wine. You remember that? And his mother goes up to him and tells him, hey, we're out of wine. What does he tell his mother? What does this, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And here he tells another one of his family members, my time has not yet come. We understand that Jesus was not on people time, but he was on God's time. A divine calendar that was predetermined by his father. No second, no minute, no hour was wasted. Nothing random happened or nothing happened by chance, but everything was according to God's plan. And we see this all throughout scripture in Galatians 4.4. But when the set time had come, God sent his son born of a woman under the law. Or we see in Romans 5.6, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Amen. Jesus knew what was awaiting him in Jerusalem. And his brothers were so blind to what was going on in the bigger picture of things. They thought by going up to this feast and performing miracles, Jesus would become a household name, receiving honor and praise and glory, and ultimately become king. However, Jesus knew that opposition and hostility and rejection was awaiting him. Their thinking is probably, or Jesus' thinking is probably, you do not understand, guys. I mean... What awaits me is a sea of resistance, not glorification. 
And in six months, a crown of thorns will be placed on my head in result of that resistance. My time has not yet fully come. However, your time is always here. Then he reveals to his brothers who they belong to in verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. This is Christ and how he divides. In light of the Supreme Court's passing of gay marriage in America, let this be to some encouragement to you. Let me remind you that the days that we are living in are very, or will get very dark. I'm very pessimistic about the future. And us as Christians will be called many names, bigots and, and things that go with that. But remember, we, be called, we are called to be salt and light. We are called to be a witness of Christ into a cold and dark world. However... When Jesus says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it and its works are evil. It's funny how something that was said over 2,000 years ago in Galilee is even more relevant 2015 in America. Yes, we were called to be salt and light, but also to testify about the world's evil works. We're being now pressed and we're now being taught to pat on the back and wink at a person who was in sexual sin, thinking that he was or she was created with a genetic disposition to like the same sex. At this very moment, we are being jammed by the culture to accept that God simply just made people different. Something that was used to be done in, in private is now being pressed upon everyone, is now being pressed upon the masses. Something that used to be looked at as taboo is now being viewed as normal. So Christians will say, well, we have to love them and we cannot judge them. We must accept who they are because Jesus would have. First off, we do accept who they are. Not that they are born homosexual, but they are born sinners. But the problem is, you don't accept who you are. You don't accept that God created you to bear his image with just certain body parts that fit together. What you are saying, however, is God either created me different or he made a mistake. Well, the first one is impossible both scripturally and scientifically. The second one is worse than the first because my Bible says, and it records from Genesis to Revelation, God never messing up. God never making a mistake. My Bible also says that the same Jesus that you say says nothing about homosexuality is the same Jesus I read in Genesis that brought down an entire village, entire town because of their sexual immorality. Yes, we are to love them. Yes, we are to show them grace. We are to show them mercy. But those things come last. The wrath of God comes first. And if they refuse to accept that, then the wrath of God is still abiding on them. 
to this day. And it's only by God's common grace that you are able to even live and breathe and eat and function in a society today. We must testify that the world's evil works are evil. Especially in the culture that we're living in today. Know this, brothers and sisters. If you are for Christ, especially young people, you will be against the world. There's no neutrality there. There's no middle ground. You're either one, you're you're for one, or you're for the other. First John two fifteen makes it plain: Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And when you are hated, when you are being made fun of, when the name calling starts to come, don't be shocked. Don't be taken by surprise, but remember that it hated Christ first. It hated your king first. No servant is greater than his master. If they hate me, they will hate you. As I saw the pictures of the White House being lit up by the rainbow, um, which the homosexual community, which is not a community, has stolen from us as their symbol, one truth came across my mind. And I hope this is some encouragement to you, is that this is not our home. And like Paul said in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. From now, we await our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. But until that day, speak the truth. Testify. But do it in love and gentleness and respect. We tell sinners who they are in Adam in order to point them to the new creation that is being offered in Christ. This is why the world hated Jesus. Because he told people what they didn't want to hear. He didn't conform to this world but exposed the world for who they are. And then he pointed to himself as the only hope you got left. It's always going to be the words of Jesus that causes division. And that's why we are against the world. Because we don't accept what philosophers say or what science says. We don't accept what humanists say or what seculars say. We don't accept what society collectively sees as truth. But we stand on the words of Christ. Amen. Which Colossians 2 says, all the treasures and knowledge are hidden. We will always be against the world. Amen. Always. God is not trying to redeem the culture and thereby as a result he will redeem the world in a whole which many people believe but rather he is redeeming people out of the world so that they may preach the gospel inside into the culture. Verse 8 You go up to the feast. I'm not going to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. And after this, you remain in Galilee, simply saying, I'm not going to this feast when you want me to go. I'm going to this feast when I want to go. And we see in verse 10, but after this, his brothers had gone up to the feast. And then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast saying, where is he? 
And there was much muttering about him among the people. Well, others said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. The Jews knew Jesus was going to be there. Because every Jewish male had to attend. We read in verse 12, the anticipation of the crowd. There was much talk about Jesus and who he was. Some say he was a good man. Others say that he was leading people astray. The common people of the day, just like today, were divided over who this man is. The city was flooded with discussion and disagreement about who Christ is. Some considered his miracles and his ability to help those in need is what made him a good man. Others maintained that his words and his works were simply a smokescreen to cover his real intentions. He was an imposter. He was misleading the people. We also see in verse 13 the opposition to Christ in Jerusalem has gotten so strong that not even his family or his friends possess confidence to speak about him openly. That's how much power this legalistic system that the Pharisees were preaching had. People were afraid to give their opinion of who Christ is. As John MacArthur put it, he was a topic of whispers. This is the environment that Jesus is about to step into. With the Jews seeking to kill him and the people anticipating his arrival, the stage is now set for Jesus to make a grand entrance into Jerusalem. And this time, the people will not marvel over his miracles, but instead, they will marvel at his words. Today, I hope that what you get out of this is, number one, we are not of the world. So therefore, let's not act like the world and talk like the world. But we are of Christ. And if we are in Christ, then we don't do what people who are in the world do. We will always be in division with somebody. But don't let that harm you. And don't let that shock you. Because we have God's truth on our side. Amen. Without the Bible, nothing makes sense. Right. Without the Bible, it's logically impossible to live. Right. This is the truth of God. Amen. And let us always stand on this truth. Whether it brings us conflict or unity. Mm-hmm. Let us stand on what the Bible says. And what Christ says. Not what society says, not what the culture says, but what our great king says. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time. I thank you for your word that you have given us. I pray that this was some help for us as we go into the workforce, as we speak to unbelievers, even to our family members. As we see that you had it worse than us. Because not even your brothers believed. Lord, I pray that this day we will remember who you are. 
You were a figure that brought division, but yet also a figure that reconciled us back to the Father. I thank you for this time. I pray as we now partake of the Lord's Supper that we will remember who Christ was and we will celebrate who Christ is right now, the King that is reigning on his throne. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.